Good morning, Georgetown. We are still in 1 Samuel. If you want to flip there to about chapters 16, 17, 18, we won't quite get to 18 today, but we're, we're asking the question, is it true that you are the company that you keep? This is attributed to Aesop over 2,500 years ago. And as we examine the life of a couple of kings through 1 Samuel, we're, of course, asking ourselves, even though we're not a king, we're trying to become the image of our true King Jesus. So what does the company you keep say about? What does it do for? How does it build or detract from the character that is supposed to match that of Jesus Christ? In business, real estate, especially in social media, it seems like it's really popular recently to say something like, you are the sum of the five people you hang out with the most. Have you guys heard or read or seen something like that on social media? It's like you're the, your income will be like the five people you hang out with the most, or your body fat percentage will be like the five people you hang out with the most. And suddenly some of us are losing friends. We're like, what's going on here? And social media influencers, they don't have to have any basis in reality to make this claim. But it is interesting that Aesop's attributed quote has become popular again, and that is, you are the company that you keep. Well, what about when it's your family? Are you that company then? Because most of us don't get to choose our family at younger ages, even older. You don't often get to choose your family. And, and what, about, what about work? Because we've all got to have a job. We've got to go somewhere to earn a living for our family. What about work? You don't usually get to choose who you're with at work. I mean, your cube is your cube, and you're going to be right there by the person in the cube. What about in life where we've got friends and some of them feel like, uh, I don't know, I think culture likes to say this, they're toxic, I should eliminate and just chop them off. Is there, is there a precedent in scripture for us just chopping people or eliminating them from our lives? Some, some of us might already be thinking like, I have friends that they don't change, I've, I've already got everything established in my life and I would challenge you specifically if you're saying that I've already got the people I'm going to hang out with. When you join a new place to play an event or to experience a performance, or when you join a new gym, you are going to then have a new group of people that are around you. And it's imperative then that we're aware of how they influence our lives. If you're graduating maybe grade school and going to middle school, for the most part, I would agree your friends are going to be about the same. But you might be in an art class. You might be in band all of a sudden, and you're going to have a whole new group of people around you now. Or you may be going from middle school to high school. New friends are coming to that school too. How are you going to spend your time? You may be going from college to grad school or to trade school. You may be finishing grad or trade school. You may be starting a new job. You may be entering into a realm where they're going to be people that influence your life. So are we the company that we keep? And some of you may still not be with me, and so I would challenge you. Imagine the kids this summer that are going to go to Dubs or Move or Mix or VBS or Camp or even our mission trip, and just for one week, they're going to be with a new group of people. Although some people they went with, they're also going to be with new people. Where in your life, in the next year, are you going to be with a new group of people, even if it's only for a week? Because I would, I would suggest there are going to be times when you're going to be with some new people, even if it's only for a short time. So are we the company that we keep? 
I think it's important for us to continue looking at the lives of these kings and seeing how they point us to Jesus or don't, how they're the image of Jesus or the antithesis thereof, and also how can our lives be lived more in line with the values of the kingdom of God. That which our King Jesus says is of most importance. So if you're with me there in 1 Samuel, you might recall back in chapter 16 that David was, he was anointed king over Israel. But he wasn't yet installed as or recognized as. You saw a coronation yesterday. He was recognized as the rightful king. We get a glimpse now of David's character, because if we rewind to 16, when he's being anointed, when, when Samuel arrives at the home of Jesse to anoint a king, he goes through how many? He goes through seven brothers. Jesse had to sin for David to bring him in. And Samuel is reminded, I think we should remember, let's together remember verse 7, especially part B. The Lord is speaking. The Lord says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. At this time in David's life, he has no control over who he hangs out with. The company he keeps is not much his choice. He's got his family, and his family is his family. Some of you can relate. You've got your family, and that's your family, and that's who you hang out with, and you don't have a big choice in it right now. It's interesting to note, Samuel arrives to anoint the king, and seven of his brothers pass in. And this is the family situation in which David finds himself. This is a situation in which God is building the character of a man that is later called a man after God's own heart. David is among some people who don't even believe in him, his own family. So let's explore how David's early life contributes then to his character. From here, we go on uh, further into chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, and we see that the author is telling us now, uh, attributed to Samuel, we see that the author is now telling us Samuel is called into the service of King who? Say it if you know it. You're following along? King Saul. He's called into his service first as a player of a liar because of the spirit that's sent to torment Saul by God. So tucked into verse 18, I don't want to zoom through it, but tucked into verse 18, let's just see what is said about David. Together, let's, let's read. I would, I would invite you to read this with me. One of the servants answered. You read it with me. I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a... Okay, I'll take it from here. He speaks well and he's a fine looking man. I don't think he said it that way. And the Lord is with him. I don't think that he would dare say that in the court of a king like Saul. By this point, what we can know about David is, is known by a servant of a king. Now, how is it that a sheep herder has a reputation that has made it to the servant who serves in the court of a king. I'm not talking about the guy who presses the grapes to make the wine. I'm not talking about some guy out in a wine press in a field. I'm talking about a servant who's in the court of a king. And how is it that he knows David's reputation as a warrior, as a brave man? And these are somehow things you put on the resume when you're looking for somebody who plays the liar. That's the job opening, liar player, harp player. That's the job opening. And David 
has in the court of King Saul someone who testifies to his ability to play the liar, but then his what? His character. We have a testament by someone else to King David, not king yet, but his character. And at this time, David isn't, he's not fighting battles. He's not fighting battles like his brothers. He's fighting, he's fighting for sheep. I mean, David is just shepherding a little herd out here in the field. But he's known by others as a brave man and a warrior. So let's allow ourselves some curiosity. Just imagine for a second, like, how did this servant come to know David? Some of you might have come to know some people because they're, playing, they're good at playing music. And then further, because it's a kind of music that you like. And then maybe it's because you like their lyrics. And I wonder if David wrote something about a scene that he describes later when he's trying to explain to Saul, I can go fight this Philistine. This is David talking about himself. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, stuck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth, and when it turned on me, seized it by its hair, I struck it, and I killed it. I wonder if David maybe wrote some words like harmlessly passing your time in the grassland away. Imagine him playing the lyre. Only dimly aware of a certain unease in the air. And that servant just loves it and he goes and tells King Saul. I have no idea how this happens. But somehow this servant is aware of King, not yet, anointed King David's ability to play the lyre. David has faithfully followed the Lord. Even in the small stuff, David was faithful to protect his flock and to provide for his flock. Remember, the part of the purpose of walking through the Old Testament together is to see how in Scripture, even a thousand years before there's a New Testament, God is pointing to the Messiah, our King Jesus Christ. So now back to David, the only responsibility we know about that he has is to protect the flock given by his father. And what else, Georgetown? How else is he imaging Jesus? Now he's, he's protecting the flock given by his father and he's providing for a flock given to him by his father. And he's considered a brave warrior, a brave man. David often would then, according to his own testimony, stand between danger and his flock. He would remove his flock from danger. His flock was healthy enough to move around with him because, of course, he cared for them. So David had already shown his ability to be faithful with the stuff that, recall, the seven other brothers were no longer doing. This was David's job. This is small fry stuff. And David was faithful I wonder how often I miss an opportunity to be faithful in just the little bitty small things in life. Little bitty small opportunities to have my character become more like the character of Jesus. But I miss it because I'm, I'm not willing to be faithful in that small thing. Imagine who is out in the wilderness observing David being faithful. I cannot imagine someone, especially if they're in the service of the king, who just has time to go watch a shepherd. I have no idea how this happens, but I know 
that what we can tell from the text so far is that when we're faithful in the smallest things, when we're faithful in the small things, we can develop the character like our King Jesus. When we're faithful in the small things, we can increase the opportunity that we'll be called up to serve our King in a new opportunity. King David at the time, not recognized as king, but anointed still, was called upon because he could play the lyre. He was a good player. He was a brave man and a fine warrior. But remember, David's reputation didn't come about the way that other men gained a reputation in battle. All David had to battle was whatever was trying to drag his sheep off as a snack. Jesus said this, if you are faithful in the little things, well, then you can be faithful in the big things. But if you're dishonest with the little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibility. So where are we missing opportunities then to to be faithful in even the smallest of things? I want to think personally, I want to think corporately about where we might be faithful in the small things, and thus develop the character of a king. I think finances might be one. I think relationships. I think physical, our health, our physical health. And I think also walking in the Spirit, obeying Jesus. And these are just under the heading of individual or personal ways that you and I could become faithful in little things. So I remember a time when I was probably 15, maybe 14. I was not 16 yet. I could not drive. And I had learned how to mow some grass and make some money doing so. And our pastor uh, at church, he had challenged the whole congregation with a money-back guarantee to begin giving 10% of our income, or if we're doing that already, to move it on up to whatever we felt we could trust God. Because he wanted us to accept the challenge that God issues to us in Malachi. And that is to just test me in this. See if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven, the storehouse of heaven, and bless you. This is not a gospel of prosperity, which means if you tithe, you get more money. That is a prosperity garbage gospel. We're not talking about that, but we are talking about the truth. And that is that God says to test him. And so our pastor invites us to test him. He gives us a money back guarantee. You have to sign some paperwork. And so I'm thinking, man, I'm going to try this out. And I want to tell you how small of a thing I'm being faithful with, Georgetown, because at the time I was mowing lawns for like 10 or 15 bucks. We're talking not a lot of money, not a lot. We're talking faithful in really little things because it's like a buck and a buck 50 and two bucks. And friends, I am standing before you telling you that when I was faithful in those little things, my life changed in ways I never would have imagined because I was willing to just take a little step to try a little bit of faithfulness, and it took a money-back guarantee. So there's really nothing to brag about here because it was a money-back guarantee that got me to think, you know, I think I could, I could test God at his word. I could try that out, and I tried it out, and my life was changed forever. So friends, I wonder if you, if you and I are being faithful in our finances. Are we being living in a way that supports this church and other work in God's kingdom by our willingness to give. And I am confident that some of you are saying, you have no idea how many bills I have. You're right, I don't have a clue. But I think that faithfulness could also mean making and sticking to a budget and thereby 
maybe having the money then to give. So the first one, if we're talking individually, I think being faithful in our finances will develop the character like a king. I think uh, physically is another way that we have to become more faithful and that we can all take a small step. Uh, I, I remember my grandma Pat, and this was, she was 90 years old. She's confined mostly to a chair that has a little up and down button on it. And she's in this chair and we're all visiting her. And one of uh, the kids says, why do you have cans of pumpkin pie filling by your chair? Oh, these are my dumbbells. Hand those to me. And grandma starts going, one, two, three. And she's 90, and she's sitting in a chair, and I'm like, I really need to be doing a little bit more. So you know you can be convicted by someone who, at 90 years old, decides that it's still important for us to be faithful in small things, like even stewarding, this body, this temple of the Holy Spirit. Some of you may want a, a pointer on this, so here's a, a pointer. You might want to start out with a five-pound potato sack. You just hold it out to your sides for like a minute. Hold it out there. And then when you get real tough, like move on up to 10-pound sacks. You're getting like as strong as Brad Spine now. And then you get really tough, and you move on up to like 50-pound sacks. Hold it out there. Now you're as tough as Ethan Spine. <laughs> and then you move on up to 100 pounds. And when you get there, add a potato. See, the point is I was talking about bags, and then you add a potato. And Guys, I'm going to tell you, first service got it. And I don't know if that's on me or if that's on you. I don't know. Maybe there's a small step that God has been putting on your heart. And maybe my workout partner is sitting in the back right now going, it's been like three months, haven't seen you. That, they can both be true, can't they? There may be a small step that, that you and I have to take in becoming responsible to be faithful in the small things physically. And that's individually as we develop our individual character that should be imaging, or, or like Doug said, painting a picture of, we should be walking paintings of our true King Jesus. Uh, another one I think... Um, that we probably have to work on is relationships. And you're still thinking, man, I don't get to pick my family. And I totally agree, you don't get to pick your family. Do you think David enjoyed tending his flocks? I think David enjoyed his family and finding out that there's a guy here to anoint a new king. And we went through the seven brothers and then we decided, well, maybe we should come out into the fields and find David. Do you think he enjoyed that? I'm sure some of you don't enjoy your assignment in your family. Because you don't get to choose that. I wonder how it felt when David, you know, driving camel eats out to his brothers to deliver bread, like his dad said, and to deliver cheese to the commander, probably building some goodwill. I wonder how he felt when he got there and his oldest brother assumes this about it. Listen to the, ugh, it's kind of a harsh rebuke from a brother. Some of you live this reality David lived the life you're living. This is in verse 28 of chapter 17. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption, the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. Some of you live in a family situation just like that. And David lived in a family situation like that. A family that didn't believe in him. A family that assumed they knew his heart. 
And David was still able to develop the character of a king. Maybe your parents don't care. Maybe your parents are isolated by work. Maybe they're too busy hanging out with their friends. Maybe they have no time at all for you in their life. Can you still find a way to develop the character of a king? That's a tough challenge, I'm aware. That's not going to be easy. Maybe your family assumes the worst about you, like David's oldest brother did about him, and accuses them of things they've never done wrong. Uh, I want to talk about our Grace just for a second, who's not in here at the moment, but Grace, and I want you to see this as an opportunity to how maybe you can be faithful in something small to a family that doesn't appear to love or care about you. And they're probably going to still not love or care about you. But we're talking about developing character of a king. We're not talking about our family's approval. So Grace yesterday decided that after her chores were done and after her room was mostly clean, uh, that Grace was going to help get the outside of the house a little more towards ready for the, the spring to become Summer And Grace gave a lot of her time to getting that done. And that was even after, the night before, doing some babysitting that Micah helped with. Thank you, too, Micah, a very good helper. Uh, both of whom helped the night before. But Grace, even more, went on to do more for her family. Acts of simple service and kindness to a family that didn't ask her to do it. And a family that, I'll say, I could appreciate some more what she did. How then do you need to behave towards a family, maybe that does appreciate you, but maybe doesn't even notice, but not as a means to gain favor or acceptance or change their mind about you, but as a means by which we develop a character that reflects King Jesus. The relationship with our friends is another area for us to consider our being faithful in even the smallest things. Maybe a sensitive area for some of you because the friends are chosen by you. You're choosing the friends. You don't choose your family, but you choose your friends. Do they know the source of your hope? Is the source of your hope reflected in your speech or your actions? Is the source of your hope visible to the end by any of your responses to Maybe life not going well. Maybe someone needing help or hope. Maybe even them. Do they know that you're a follower of King Jesus? I think that when we look at not only our finances and our physical health and our relationships with family and friends, we can start to see how God might be shaping our character in spite of who we hang out with. We're answering the question, are you the company you keep? It's starting to look like God can shape our character to match the image of King Jesus pretty much anywhere. David wasn't even with people. He was with sheep. So sometimes it doesn't even take people. And lastly, I wanted to talk about walking in the Spirit and it sounds so mystical because it is actually mystical. It is a thing that you won't be able to define by science. But it's also very simple. I didn't say easy. It is opening God's word. And I am not being pedantic, but I am saying this is how we do it. We open God's word and we read God's word 
And we pray that God's Holy Spirit would help us understand, that he would, uh, John puts it this way, Jesus is speaking, he says, he guides you into all truth. He convicts you of sin. He gives us the words we need, the answer when it's time for us to have that. But that's by our habitual placing our own life into God's word, reading, listening to, meditating on God's word. So then we walk by the spirit means when that scripture is brought to, let's say, brought to light or brought to mind or illuminated in your heart in some way as you're living your life, there may be a nudge right there. There may be an inkling. There may be a whisper. I'm not saying you're going to hear something. I'm not saying you won't. I I I have not heard an audible voice. I am saying that his sheep hear his voice. I am saying that when we choose to walk in step with the Spirit, regardless of all the circumstances, we then can have a character that's shaped into that of our King Jesus. The company we keep can contribute to our character, but I believe that we'll develop the character of a king when we're faithful. Say it with me, Georgetown. When we're faithful in the small things, and to make sure everybody's awake, we're going to say it together, we will develop the character of a king when we're faithful in the small things, and we're still a little sleepy, so we're almost done, but GCC, let's apply this, I said, individually and personally, and that's great, because that's America, and that's what America does, but we also, more importantly than America, I said it, I know, And I'm not even repenting because it's absolutely true. We have a higher allegiance than even to our nation, than even to our president, governor, mayor, doodly-bop, I don't care, whoever. We have the highest allegiance, that that is to the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our highest allegiance is to the the kingdom of God. So then we have to ask ourselves if we're faithful in small things in our personal life, which is literally what America is about. And then we need to ask the question then, What does that mean then for the church? What does that mean then for Georgetown Christian Church? So I just had a couple of thoughts. I think when our ministry team leaders trust their ministry team members, and in the Bible you'll see it called deacons, laborers. In Georgetown we call them ministry team leaders, people who lead teams to serve the body. When our ministry team leaders trust their ministry team members, we see them allow them to take acts that build respect and trust and faithfulness. And so I have a great example, I think, because I've observed as Stephen has tried to solve this, we'll call it a technogrammon. So if you're online, you know very clearly what I'm talking about. Uh, Hello, online. It's great to see you. Uh, You know what I'm talking about. When you get online, you cannot see the words to the song. It is a disaster. It is impossible to fix. 500 hours of time with tech support still has not fixed it. And so Melvin put on a superhero cape last week. It was really a servant cape. But he put on this cape, and he found a fix to the problem. And because Stephen trusted Melvin, he's one of our streaming techs on the worship arts team, Melvin fixed it. Big hand for Melvin. Yeah. Okay, you can't hear the people online, but they're clapping. Go, Melvin. Yes, we have, like, words on the actual stream. Because a ministry team leader was willing to trust a ministry team member, and I will say trust them a lot because they made this change like one hour before church, which 
I'm glad they didn't tell me about it. That's a bad idea. Don't do it. <laughs> but it's done, and thank you. So, the, so in your team, where can you uh, identify something that needs to be addressed, something that you have? Uh, God gives us spiritual gifts as members of his body. By his Holy Spirit, he gives you gifts, plural. Where is it that that gift is needed in the ministry team in which you're serving? And if you feel left out like, oh, I'm not on a ministry team, feel that. You belong on a ministry team. We're missing a pinky or an elbow or whatever it is that God has gifted you with. We're missing that if you're not on a team. Where is it that God has gifted you in some way that that team needs? And you may not know the team right now. But it may be time for you to take a step of small faithfulness to say, where does my gift or my passion or my heart or my natural skill or ability, where does it belong? I think Rusty sometimes thinks that my skill of hammer smashing does not belong in his ministry team. And I thank Rusty that he lets me come there and hit things with a hammer. We have to try to find where our gift is going to fit into a ministry team. Another place I think this could be really important. You might want to call it an elective leader in your life situation. Maybe it's a life group leader. But in whichever one of those instances that you may find yourself connected to the body of Christ and under the discipleship of a, a person who's journeying in their maturity in Christ, just like you and I, I wonder if maybe you could say something like, hey, you know what? We haven't eaten food in a long time. Looks like it's been about eight weeks, old man Melton. I think we need to have a pitch-in. And that's great. It's a good idea. But here's where you're involved. You say, I would like to organize a pitch-in. You can take a small step of faithfulness, also get more food. And you should bring fruit so that we can be healthy. So that's one way. Maybe an elective, you want to organize a, a pitch-in in your class. Maybe you want to organize a, a Jeff Weathers-style notebook of keeping track of the prayers that are being answered by God and the requests that we're presenting to him and trusting him to fulfill in whatever his will is. Maybe it's the same in your life group. There needs to be someone taking account of God's faithfulness. I'm not sure what it looks like for you, whether it's a life group, a ministry team, an elective, that we're collectively going to grow up into maturity. Uh, Paul says into unity, even into Christ the head, when he's writing to the Ephesian church. He believes that by our exercising of the gifts that the Lord has given us, that we're going to grow in a corporate character that is like King Jesus. But if you're holding on to that gift he's given you, how then are we imaging? How then are we reflecting? How then are we missing colors of the painting of Jesus we're supposed to reflect to our community and then to one another? Uh, dads and moms, we're going to become intensely practical. Dads and moms, how many of our kids have an opportunity to protect and provide at home? And I'm talking about like Lydia-sized kids, like Samuel-sized, Maddie-sized, little people. Are they washing and drying some towels maybe? Do not, for the love of God, ask them to fold a fitted sheet. Unless you have got like $1,000 for therapy, do not do that to your children. It's child abuse. Give them towels. <laughs> Give them towels, okay? Maybe you buy your kids expensive clothes and you don't want them to run the colors or blot a doodle or whatever. 
Give them towels. They can wash it and dry it and fold it. And then advance them in their careers of being responsible young adults. If they fed the fish and they pulled the weed, maybe they could feed the dog and fold the towel. And maybe, parents, it's time for you to say, like, you know, mom's cooked like four meals this week, and I've cooked three, and mom's pulling it, and I'm pulling it, and you're not pulling nothing but a freaking, like, little game controller out and losing your mind and melting your brain. And maybe, maybe it's time for your kids to make some spaghetti. Maybe. Oh, amen. <laughs> no, you don't want spaghetti. That's okay. Maybe it's time that we trust our kids. I want to be really clear. Um, I said a lot of times when I was young, I was a slow learner. I would say, uh, come in the house and say these terrible words. I'm bored. Whew. And mom solved it. Uh, I was slow, but mom solved it. And I was in the yard raking in like 30 seconds. It was amazing how quick this would happen. I am not saying that we are going to create this world of doom and gloom and suffering for children. But I am saying that we're going to give them opportunities to protect maybe a fish, maybe a hamster, and provide for something small like that. But then eventually, maybe make some spaghetti and fold some towels. And maybe you can make tacos for the family tonight. But in what way are we then allowing our children to, as we are becoming faithful to reflect the image of Jesus, allow them also to become faithful in small things within our home? I have this great image of when I was probably nine. Our next door neighbor said, can you mow my lawn? I'll pay you. Cha-ching! I am so ready. Dad, you got to teach me how to mow. And he did teach me how to, here's how he taught me to mow. Not the front yard, not the side yard, not the other side, not the back. But the last three strips of the very back of the yard, he's got three strips left. And he says, come on out here, I'm going to show you how to mow. And he gives him the mower and he says, finish this right here. And he's walking back to the house. And the, I kick the mower off after I'm done because I just went like this all the way down and back. And it was a lot of fun. And dad comes back out because I was able to fail in a really small area. And he says, uh, the neighbor's not going to want their yard to look like zigzags. So let's practice some straight lines. So I mowed that little three strips of grass like mm, 12 times until the lines look straight again. And then I was able to move on. And I don't know what it's going to be in your life. I'm guessing that Lydia doesn't need to be pushing a mower yet. You know, she's a little young. But I'm guessing also that our kids can handle something in some way that we can allow them to be faithful like we're faithful. Now, golden years. I have not left you out. I promise you. There was a doctor sitting in the room with his patient, and he asked his patient, how many kids do you have? Well, I have two kids by my first wife, uh, 44 and 39, and I have two kids by my second wife, 11 and 9. And the doctor says, quite an age gap there. And the patient says, well, I wasn't getting any grandkids out of the first set, so I made my own. I'm not forgetting you. If you have grandkids, if you have grandkids, you're all done parenting your kids. You don't get to train them anymore. The time is gone. But I have observed in my own life by some very wise parents of my own and Andrea's that there are sometimes they'll say, would it be okay if I showed Jimmy here how to make tacos? And they show Jimmy how to make tacos and this cute little time of bonding. It's so picturesque. You want to make sure to take a picture of it. Uh, because then when Jimmy makes the tacos later, he's going to be melting down and losing his mind and throwing a fit and foaming at the mouth and probably looking like he's having an actual seizure when you say, please make tacos again, like you did with Grandma. And you just show him that picture. See, you cannot have a seizure and still make tacos. Maybe, grandparents, maybe there's an opportunity for you to ask just kind of like beside 
maybe your kids who have maybe kids and say, can, can we make tacos together with little Jimmy and Susie and see how it goes? Maybe you can do that. I don't know your family. You know your family. I don't know them, but maybe there's an opportunity for you to help your children teach their children to develop character that is like the king. And that means, in some cases, to provide in a very small little way for the family that they're a part of. And thereby, I am connecting this. I am necessarily saying that this is part of the image of Jesus. Because remember how David was reflecting the image of Jesus? Remember how we talked about David was given a flock by his father. And he protected that flock. And he provided for that flock just like Jesus does for each of us. So as members of his kingdom, then I, I want to wrap up today and just connect this directly back to the gospel, back to the fact that we live in a reality where we have a true king, as, as Doug said, sitting at the throne of the right hand of God who has conquered sin and death and Satan by his death, burial, and resurrection, by a life of faith lived to the glory of God. There, there's a big work in there for us to join into, and that's to become members of that kingdom where we become faithful in even the smallest little bitty things like feeding a fish, like saving a sheep, like making tacos. We participate in the coming of the kingdom. We're, we're supposed to pray what is it Jesus says? Pray like this. Pray, thy kingdom come. So we participate in that. Then when we live out kingdom values and we image and we reflect the perfect king, Jesus Christ, to a world that's hurting and without hope. And I know you don't think it has anything to do with tacos. And I'm telling you that when we join in the work of that kingdom by exercising the gifts that he gives us to build up his church, the world is going to see the hope we have because of the love we have for one another and the way that his body lives in unity. Friends, if you haven't joined that team, then maybe today is the day that you say, I become a member of the body of Christ. I want to place myself at the feet of a true king, of a, a perfect king. I want to be a member of the body of Christ. And by coming forward today when we sing, it's not going to make you a member today. Uh, it's unlikely that you're getting baptized today, but it's, it's maybe the small step of faithfulness that God has placed on your heart to say, I need to learn more about becoming the person God's designed me to be. Because I can tell that when I live, it's just a little out of a line with what I know in my heart to be true. Because he has placed within our hearts a yearning that only he can fill. If you feel like that misalignment, and today is a day that maybe you want to learn more about walking in alignment with who you're created to be, and that is a member of a kingdom that is everlasting, a member of a kingdom that's greater even than America, which is pretty great, but a kingdom that's eternal and serves a perfect king. The invitation is open when we sing to come to the front. If you have questions about how your Christian life is supposed to look, Am I a Christian? I come here a lot. If you have questions like that that remain unanswered, it's the time for you to come as we declare our allegiance to King Jesus this morning.